0: The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Our hospitals in Canada are funded on what's called global budgets, meaning they're given a certain amount of dollars to sort of make it through the year uh, rather than the dollars following the the patient, which is called activity-based funding, which then, of course, incentivizes ensuring that certain volumes of care get delivered to patients. And, of course, there's then more accountability around the actual care the patient's receiving. Dr. Catherine Smart, the uh, immediate past president. the Canadian Medical Association, on this program last uh, weekend, the money follows the patient. That's the way it should be. The money should follow the patient. And what that means is the money would be there for you when you go to the hospital. The money would be there. As opposed to the money going to a um, budget expectation, let's call it. And so now we have the federal government and the provincial governments coming to the cusp of an agreement on funding. Well, I hope it works. But in the past, the experience has been that increased funding doesn't appear to repair what's wrong. It doesn't appear to repair what's wrong. And now there are different approaches taking place with the province of Ontario uh, making changes and becoming more privately engaged. And the province of Ontario encouraging healthcare professionals to move to the province and practice there if you're practicing somewhere else. More on this as we go through this segment. Five million Canadians have no family physician. Now that is critically important because those five million Canadians need healthcare from somewhere. And if they have no family doctor, I'll say it again the first link in the healthcare chain is broken. Where do they go? A walk in clinic? God bless them. But they're not your family doctor. A hospital ER? Want to wait eight, nine, ten hours or longer? I'm not knocking them. They're doing the best they can under the circumstances and with the resources they have. Why has the health care system in this country deteriorated to the extent that Canadians are dying, undercared for, while simply waiting for the most basic of care, including in hospital emergency rooms? Dr. Sean Watley is the past president of the Ontario Medical Association. He's the author of When Politics Comes Before Patients, Why and How Canadian Medicare Is failing. Dr. Watley joins us on the Roy Green Show. Dr. Watley, this is not a uh, throwaway question. How are you? I'm doing well, sir. How are you? I'm well. Thanks for joining us. Would you assess, please, the healthcare system in this country now? And I'm going to go back to the title of your book, which begins to tell the story, maybe tells the entire story, When Politics Comes Before Patients, Why and How Canadian Medicare is Failing would you just before we get into your book assess the healthcare system now
1: well i think the healthcare system continues to be an extremely important feature to all canadians i mean we we value it highly we believe in the dream that it will be there for us when we get sick but too often the reality of getting sick means we're sitting in a stretcher in a hallway in an emergency department wearing a diaper um, with no one to help you to get to the bathroom, you have to relieve yourself there. So really gruesome reality when you actually get sick. Fortunately, only 4% of any given population uh, in a you know, a feeder area for a, for a large hospital, only 4% of those people actually ever need to be admitted to acute care in a particular year. So most of us live on the dream and we're not aware of the reality and covid kind of forced that reality into our faces in just about every headline you saw for two and a half years. And so now people are have been confronted with okay, maybe the dream I've I've been living on isn't real and so we need to focus on the reality. And so I think the political pressure or the political winds now are blowing and and the premiers are saying, okay, so it looks like the public's okay with some cautious change and some increased funding to increase services for patients. And so that's what we've been seeing over the last couple of
0: weeks. Do you believe that uh, increased funding is going to increase services for patients to the extent that it's, it's required? The formula has not worked so far. All we have to do is look around and see what we're facing. And you're right, COVID did remind us or make it very starkly obvious to us where the failings and the shortcomings and the weaknesses are in our healthcare system. They were there before, but now we're just really aware of them. So, do you believe that uh, a new front funding formula between the federal government and the provinces is actually going to significantly change things? Not a hope. Not a hope. I mean, well, we, we've got uh, forty-one 400
1: point three billion reasons to know that it won't make a radical change. So, Paul Martin in 2004. Um, gave us his fix for a generation, a gigantic injection of cash, and it really didn't do much. It helped uh, doctors and nurses' uh, incomes catch up to where they used to be 15, 20 years before, but it really didn't create fundamental change. Um, The other thing that we could see with a gigantic injection of cash is you might see a wing put on a hospital or a new ward open, and the new ward would be wonderful for a few weeks until it's completely full again. So really what we're looking at And, uh, you know, Clay Christensen wrote a great book, 1997, called The Innovator's Dilemma. And he's famous for inventing what's known as disruptive um, innovation. And he, he came up with that idea in 1995. And so all the business students have heard this term over and over. But really what it means is... And we can explain it if we think of computers. So 30 years ago, the only computing power you could get that was reasonable was with a mainframe computer. So gigantic machines, they would be the size of, you know, a whole floor of your house and these personal computers. Yeah, they were around in the late 1980s, but they were kind of a novelty for geeks who, you know, like myself who liked planning, you know, programming and that sort of thing, playing games on them or whatever. But eventually the, personal computers started to offer computing power that was actually not only what people needed, it started to exceed what people needed. Oh my goodness, I had I could do Word documents and spreadsheets and calculations. And mainframes were still there. They were still gigantic and they were still really, really powerful. But the expense and what they could offer went far beyond what the average person ever needed. And so that's kind of what we're seeing with hospitals. Hospitals are amazing. They offer sophisticated care, bypass surgery. You know, you can have blood coming out of your body through a machine and back into your body and intra-aortic balloon pumps, which actually help pump the blood for you when your blood pressure is too low. All sorts of wonderful, wonderful things. But you have to get past the ER first. I'm sorry what? You have to get past the emergency room first. Well, that's true too. But they're like the mainframe computers. They've gone beyond what the average person needs, and so they can't even meet the demand as you say of the folks trying to get through the emergency department. So what Ford has suggested is let's start giving some of those services like a knee replacement knee replacement very standard we know how long it takes. Let's start doing those in health facilities that already exist in Ontario because we don't need these gigantic acute care hospitals mm-hmm. to provide those services. So, so that's the disruptive thing he's doing.
0: Yeah, we're, we're talking to a national audience and when they hear Ontario, sometimes they're less than happy, um, which I understand. But now we have a situation where Mr. Ford, the premier appears to be en- en- uh, enticing some would argue poaching, attempting to poach healthcare professionals from other Canadian jurisdictions, and then without requiring these professionals like nurses to register with the provincial colleges of nurses. Do you have concerns about um, this kind of development? We could end up with 13, well, we have 13 different jurisdictions uh, in Canada with healthcare, including the federal government. Do you have concerns we could end up with a competitive situation, one province trying to poach from the others? Oh, for sure. We already have some competition
1: right now, but it's just difficult to change. So it's only going to get better then. (laughs) We've always staffed our system by poaching. Usually it's poaching from other countries, which is a a, a moral failure, I think, where we steal docs from poor countries that really desperately need them to come and staff our system. So now we're just having
0: interprovincial poaching. Dr. Watley, when we talk about the money following the patient... And that is, that's is—that's not a phrase that I've only heard for the last two weeks from CMA presidents. It's a phrase I've heard or a term I've heard for decades, and certainly we've, one we've used many times in discussions about health care. But what does it mean for the average person, the money follows the patient, and particularly for the 5 million who have no family doctor?
1: Yeah, great question. So when it comes to hospital care, most hospitals in Canada, um, we were the last place in the world actually focused on what's called global budgets, So essentially, the hospital received a mountain of cash to provide all the care expected during that year. The trouble is, it's very difficult to plan for a COVID pandemic or for an increase in population or a new housing uh, development to open up. And so hospitals were always focused on trying not to go over budget. They would lose money if they provided more care. So that's the global budget approach. The good thing about a global budget is it's simple and it's predictable. So governments know how much hospitals are going to cost, give or take, you know, a few hundred million dollars. However, it's very rigid. It's very, very hard to change processes activity-based funding or where dollars actually follow patients means that hospitals get more budget or more income. They make money, if you want to put it in those terms, when you go in to get your knee replaced. So they're very eager to get you in to get your knee replaced. They are not benefiting at all if they are not providing care. The trouble with activity-based funding is it's very difficult to transform our hospitals to your point. I've heard this before. It's because we've been trying it for about 20 years so Quebec and uh and Ontario great great uh, report I was just looking at this morning um that reviews the last two decades of our attempts to get patient-based funding, activity-based funding and the difficulty Primarily is that the hospital's interests or the hospitals are motivated to show how activity-based funding is going to fail. Secondly, a activity-based funding works best for simple, concrete procedures. You need your blood test done. You go to a, in, you know an independent clinic, and the clinic does the blood test, and the clinic gets paid. I, I don't want so to interrupt conc- you.
0: I, I don't want to inter- interrupt you, but I will for just a moment. And, and here's what I'm hearing you say. I'm hearing you repeat the title of your book. When politics <laughs> comes before patients, that's yeah. what I'm hearing.
1: Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to uh, toot the horn too much. It, I, I, in fairness, hospitals are very, very difficult. And I'm not to talking about
0: just hospitals, Doctor Watley. We're talking about the whole <laughs> system here that is being yeah. managed by politicians, and it's become a political football. You and I know this. Yeah. I'm hearing it from. Everyone I speak with, virtually everyone I speak with, there's not a lot of defense for the health care system the way it is. And if we talk about the pandemic, it's the flashlight which exposed the structural weaknesses of Canada's public health care delivery system. And there were plans in place. There were plans in place that were approved by the provinces and the federal government pandemic plans. And the moment the pandemic hit, the plans went out the window.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. I would hate to be a politician right now trying to manage health care. But that's their job.
0: Well, you'd think, That's right? their but job. We keep, elect- we we, keep electing we the we same people We have 38 people over million people in this country. And it's the number one issue. You're the person they want to go to see, Dr. Watley. Anyone who's a doctor, particularly family physicians, I know the pressure on family physicians is through the roof at this particular time. Emergency rooms are a challenge. Uh, other hospital services are often not available. So where do you turn? You turn to the family doctor, which brings me back to the 5 million people who have no family doctor. We also have this aging population. Can this system, Dr. Watley, be fixed in time to deal with the aging population and the aging doctor population? Yeah. I, I like to say that we don't have an absolute lack of doctors,
1: especially family doctors. We do have an absolute lack of pediatric neurologists, right? Sub-sub-specialists. Yes, we need more of them. But actually, if we took the um, 22,000 practicing docs in Ontario, about 15,000, 16,000 doctors who are family doctors, and we said, you know what? You can blow the doors off your current procedures and start caring for more people, just like your dentist and your lawyer and your accountant and they do that by hiring extenders. So it's not that they are given an extender from the government but these little offices, your accountant, for example, goes out and hires a bunch of people to help him or her do their accounting work. So do lawyers. So do dentists. Right now we have a relative lack of doctors due to an absolute lack of freedom to innovate on how we offer care. So that's the primary issue. Docs should be able to offer care to far more than a thousand or 1500 patients. This takes me back to your book title. (laughs) <laughs> I, know. I really appreciate you mentioning it, Roy, but- No, right. but it, but it's true, that's, that's it, it takes is. me
0: back to your book title. I'm going to open up the phone lines in the next half hour and take phone calls from people who are struggling within the system. I'm sure this. I'm gonna be hearing what you and I have been talking about and what I've spoken about with Dr. LaFontaine and Dr. Smart and what I've spoken about with, with other doctors. We don't usually find the politicians too eager to come on the program to talk about healthcare. They'd rather talk to each other and then issue news releases. Can we fix this, and we have 30 seconds, Dr. Watley, can we fix this and get back to servicing the people who require the help, who are in interminable wait lines right now?
1: Yes, if we ask why the system exists. If the system exists for patient care, okay. then we will focus on delivering that. If it f- exists simply to provide income redistribution from yeah. one province to the
0: next, never happens. Okay.